Good morning. Yeah, there I am. Are you enjoying your beautiful Michigan holiday weekend? It is nice out there. Um, got a question for you. How many of you, by a show of hands, raise your hand, if you are aware of a house in Midland that most people call the Igloo House? Raise your hand if you're aware of that house. Now, if you're aware of that house, but do not, do not know who lives there, raise your hand. Most of you know who lives there. You're about to meet him. Come on up. Our preacher for today, one of our elders, Len Bogan. He lives in the Igloo house with, of course, his wife, Carol. And we're going to pray for him as he comes to share God's word with us this morning. Father, we thank you for this beautiful weekend. We thank you for the chance to be together. And we pray right now that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Through Len, just bless him. We thank you for the preparation that he's done. We pray that you would help him as he presents today to just speak your truth. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Chuck. Good morning. How are you today? I think I heard great, good, fine. Are you really? I happen to know there's a lot of suffering out here. If you talk to people, if you get close to people, they'll tell you what's really going on. There are people who are suffering physically. We've got cancer diagnoses, chronic pain, back pain, neck pain. People are suffering mentally, mental health issues. They're more common than most of us believe. People are suffering financially. There are people who are just barely making it when gas was two fifty a gallon. Now at $5 a gallon, they can't afford to go to work. There are people who have lost jobs. People are struggling, suffering relationally. Um, a lot of us are still hurting over Pastor Jeremy leaving. Right now, I'm praying for 11 marriages that I know personally that are having difficulties, that are on the brink of divorce. One of them, we've got a slide, one of them is my daughter in Korea, Hey Young. I, uh, there we go. I walked her down the aisle 10 years ago in Seoul. And she is right now in the midst of the ugliness of divorce, the heartbreak, thinking about who gets custody, what that looks like, dividing up assets. Her heart is broken. My heart is broken over this. 
there are some people who may think, well, that would be a good thing because I'm suffering physical or mental abuse. Suffering every day with that. Or some who are grieving the death of a loved one. We put on a good face at church, but that pain is in there, and the pain is real. Whether we show it or not, whether we understand God's goodness or not, the pain is still real. So why do we say, oh, I'm fine, I'm great, when someone asks? Well, maybe it's because we know you really don't want to know. Right? And, and in our culture, right, how are you doing? That's just what we say. And we're not expecting a real answer. Maybe it's because I know that if I tell you how I'm really doing, that's going to bring the pain to the surface, and I've been stuffing it down. And I don't want to feel that pain again. So I just tell you, fine, so I don't have to think about it. Or maybe it's because when you look at the people sitting here today, they all look pretty happy. And you're afraid that if you tell them how you really feel, that maybe they won't think I belong. Let me tell you, you do belong here. In your pain, in your suffering. I'm glad you're here. Today I'm going to tell you three things. Three-point sermon. I'm going to tell you that your suffering doesn't indicate God's displeasure with you. You're not suffering because he's mad at you. I'm going to tell you, in fact, it's probably just the opposite. I'm going to give you some ideas about how to process your suffering constructively. And I'm going to remind you that the Bible teaches us that suffering comes before glory. And as believers, we're all looking forward to that glory. So why do we, why do we think that God's mad at us? Ryan Collinger talked to us about Job. And in his last sermon, he told us about, well, actually his last two sermons, he told us about the retribution principle. If I'm suffering, it must be because God's punishing me. In John chapter 9, Jesus is in Jerusalem. The chapter starts out, as he passed by, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it wasn't that this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Even Jesus' disciples thought that suffering was a result of God's displeasure. Where did they get this idea that it might be his sin or his parents' sin? Well, when God gave the Ten Commandments, okay, in Exodus chapter 20, and remember, we're at Mount Sinai. The top of the mountain is on fire. It's smoking. God speaks audibly to however many Israelites there were, two to uh, Hebrews there were, two to, to maybe even as many as six million people 
I don't know if you've ever been in that large a crowd. Without a PA system, God speaks from heaven. And he says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So what does this mean? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. That sure sounds like God punishes children for the sins of their parents. A fundamental principle of Bible interpretation is that you've got to look at context. And context is the paragraph you're reading. It's the chapter. It's the book. It's the whole Bible. Any passage we look at, we have to interpret in a way that's consistent with everything else in the Bible. That's one of the reasons we need to be reading our Bibles. We need to be familiar with the entirety of the Scripture because we're going to make some mistakes if we're not. So we have to understand this, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children, in the context of Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel writes, the word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. And the chapter continues making it absolutely clear, and I encourage you to read it, Ezekiel chapter 18, that God doesn't punish the children for the sins of the parents. So what does it mean that the iniquity of the fathers is visited on the children? Well, there are a couple of ways to understand that. One is the difference between consequences and punishment. Now, dad goes out and he spends the rent money and the grocery money drinking or gambling, well, the kids have no place to live and they have no food to eat. That's not a punishment from God. That's a simple consequence of what the father did. There's another way to think about it. Each of us suffers from what one author called a structural weakness. We're all, we're all weak toward a certain temptation. I know what mine is. Most of you probably know what yours are too. Well, no surprise, my, sin, uh, my son has the same structural weakness that I have. He is weak toward the same sin. Like father, like son. He got that from me. My iniquity visited on him. It's not a punishment. It's just a fact of nature. So if we're not being punished, how do we understand our suffering? Again, Ryan told us that we should seek answers in God's wisdom rather than questioning his justice. But doesn't God want us to be happy? 
God says, be ye happy, for I am happy, right? I should see a lot of shaking of heads, not nodding of heads. In Leviticus chapter 19, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Peter quotes this again in in 1 Peter chapter 1. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Now, what does holy mean? We use the word all the time in church, but we don't always understand what it means. Right? The, the basic meaning is separate, set apart. And it's not so much set apart from as set apart unto. We're to be holy unto God. I think of it this way. When I was growing up, my mom had a set of dishes that we didn't use every day. They were in a special cabinet. They were set apart for special occasions. We are set apart for God's purpose for his use, for his praise, for his glory. Our suffering is a part of the way that God makes us holy. It still hurts. But it's something God uses. When we think that God somehow owes us happiness... We misunderstand who he is. So what happens? We get mad at our concept of who we think God should be. And then we transfer that anger to the true and living God. But he was never the God that we got angry with in the first place. Because he never promised us happiness. In fact, quite the opposite. He promised us trials, tribulations, suffering. So how do we process that? If God's not mad at me, then what do I do when I'm suffering? Okay, first, move toward him, not away from him. I've heard too many people tell me, God's mad at me. God doesn't like me. He's suffering me. I can't go to church. I can't read the Bible. I, I, I can't have anything to do with him. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Move toward God in your suffering, not away. What if you're not the one suffering? What if it's the guy next to you? Don't judge him for his suffering. Don't say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? No, instead, we should be agents of comfort. Dave pointed out two weeks ago that as members of one body, we should be caring for one another. Gib told us more specifically last week Care for the person in front of you. If you meet someone who's suffering, and you will, care for that person. One of the reasons we suffer is so that we can comfort others later 
with the same comfort that we've received. My wife talks to people with cancer because she's been through cancer. She can comfort them in a way that I can't. Someone who's been through divorce, you can talk to your married friend and you can receive comfort, but you talk to someone who's been through divorce and there's a connection. That person understands your pain a little better than a person who hasn't been through something similar. When we process our suffering, we need to remember that it's not unusual for believers to suffer. In fact, Jesus said in John chapter 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Peter says, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Suffering is normative. It's not wrong. It's not unusual. In fact, I think about it this way sometimes. Kids are out playing in the street. When, uh, when our son was young, we lived in a court. All the kids played in this court. There was no traffic there. If there's something going on, I go out and I spank my kid. I don't spank my neighbor's kid. If God is taking you through suffering, that's an indication that you're his kid. He is transforming you. He's making you holy. If you never suffer, you've got to wonder whose kid you really are. God uses suffering in a lot of ways. I counted at least 10 from Scripture, and I don't have time to go through them all today. Um, that would be another sermon or maybe two. Uh, if you want to talk about it, I'd love to talk about it with you after this. But if we can put the list up there. Um, here we go. Judgment is only one of the 10. Um, he disciplines us like a good father. He uses suffering so that we'll know to rely on him. Um, my point is not to go through all of these, but it's to let you know there are good things that God can bring out of suffering. It still hurts, right? Knowing that good things are coming doesn't take the pain away. But it helps us look past the pain. So, knowing this, how should we respond to suffering? Well, we know it doesn't indicate God's displeasure. In fact, it's normal. We should move toward God. How do we do that? Several weeks ago, Ken told us that God invites us to pray, invites us to call him Father. Scott reminded us that prayer changes everything. We should move toward God in prayer. James wrote, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. What does James mean? Ask without doubting. Ask without doubting God's goodness. 
ask without doubting his wisdom. We need to change our focus. Pastor Chuck told us about Ebenezer testimonies. Look back. Where has God brought you through suffering? What has he taught you through suffering? A lot of you know that my wife was diagnosed with leukemia in 2013. She's cured now. God was very gracious. It was a rough ride. When she first received her diagnosis, the first thing she thought was, God, how can you be glorified in this? That's the right way to think about your suffering. How can God be glorified in this? I can tell you he was glorified in her leukemia. She's got a ministry now. Um, People come out of the woodwork. She doesn't have enough time. She doesn't have to advertise. People just keep calling her. They're referred to her. Hey, I've got cancer. I need help. While she was in the hospital, we saw two straight-up miracles. Um, At one point, they canceled all of her future appointments because they were so sure she was dead. And she wasn't. And she was, her, her just, her being there was a witness to all the medical staff. God was glorified in many ways, probably in ways that we still don't understand. The real question you want me to ask, answer, is why am I suffering? Each one of us asks that question. I can't answer that one for you. God can, but he might not. He doesn't promise us answers. But even though I can't answer that question, I want to remind you that suffering comes before glory. This is a pattern throughout the Bible. Some of you are old enough to remember no pain, no gain. That didn't originate with Jane Fonda. It comes from the Bible. Think about Joseph. Good kid. His brothers sell him into slavery. He gets thrown in jail for not having committing adultery. And he winds up second in command in the most powerful nation in the world. In a position to save those very brothers who betrayed him. Think about Daniel, taken as a teenager from his home, ripped away from his family, from the place he grew up, trained in a new culture, given a new name. He winds up being one of the top advisors to kings in the most powerful, in successive um, kingdoms that are the most powerful in the world at that time. Think of David. His father didn't think much of him. Samuel says, don't you have any other sons? No, well, there's that one, that, that young one that's out there with the sheep. His father-in-law 
who happened to be the king and commanded an army, sent the army to chase him out of jealousy. He lived in caves for years. Eventually became the greatest king that Israel ever had. After Jesus' resurrection, we read about this in Luke chapter 24. There are two guys walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And Jesus walks up alongside them and says, hey, what are you guys talking about? They say, did you just get here? You don't know what happened? Jesus, you know, we, he was a prophet, mighty in word and deed, and, and we thought he was going to save Israel. But the Romans crucified him. And now some of our number are saying that, that he's alive again. And Jesus says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Paul writes to the Romans, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The writer to the Hebrews writes, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And a perfect example of changing your focus from the pain to the glory. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, for this light momentary affliction. Now now you can go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 to find out what he means by light momentary affliction. I was beaten so many times I lost count. I was whipped three times. I was beaten with rods. Uh, I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and a night in the deep. He says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Just, yeah, I've been through some rough times, but compared to what's coming, it's nothing. It's hard to take hold of that when you're in the middle of the suffering because the pain is still there. The pain is real. But we need to understand the way to get through the suffering is to look toward the glory. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer in Jesus, you don't have that same promise of glory. Suffering is harder. I encourage you, if you're not a Christian, Learn more about this Jesus. Come up here after the service. We'll have pastors, elders, Stephen ministers up here. We would like nothing better than to give you a Bible, tell you about this Jesus who can bring you to glory after the suffering. We have a couple of minutes here. I want to 
try something that may or may not go well. If you're suffering and you would like prayer, I'm going to ask us to take about three minutes. Stand up where you are. If you see someone around you, stand up. Put a hand on them. Just move near them and pray for them. You don't have to tell us why you want prayer. You may. But if they don't tell you, that's okay. God knows what they're dealing with. Pray for them. That's what we do as a body. That's how we get through these things together. I'll pray and then I'll ask you to stand. Father in heaven, we know that you're good. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for putting us here with brothers and sisters. Lord, I ask that you would make each of our hearts tender toward one another, toward the suffering that our brothers and sisters are are encountering. Lord, please use us to comfort one another. Please send your comfort to the ones who are suffering now. Lord, please show us how you can be glorified in all of this and make your glory our heart's desire. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Is anyone brave enough to stand up? Look around, please. Pray for someone. And if there's no one standing near you, um, you know someone who's suffering. Just take a minute and pray for them.